0: Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the Fired Up podcast right here on WJMSmedia.com. I'm Steve. I'm your host each week, and I'm so very grateful that you're taking the opportunity to download and listen to my show. Uh, as always, we are going to get into what's going on in the political world here in the United States of America. This week, we're going to uh, change it up a little bit. Uh, I've got a couple of uh, small news items that I'm going to go through right after we do our COVID update, but the balance of the show, we're going to talk about the news that came out uh, this past week, which of course was uh, the president uh, laying out or submitting his budget proposal for fiscal year 2024 and uh, what we have seen so far uh, by way of a Republican response. But first, as always, let's get into our COVID rundown. Uh, We have 103.7 million cases reported, Uh, 112 million people have died from the disease, and 673 million people uh, have been vaccinated, uh, and that includes single as well as double dose. So the other uh, piece of COVID news real quick is that the latest variant that is circulating around the country and that is the XBB.1.5 variant still continues uh, to, uh, to grow. Uh, it is, as I mentioned before, and as the medical and scientific community has let us know, uh, it is less uh, virulent. That is, the, the level of illness that one receives from this variant is uh, less than you know the prior versions of COVID that we've seen. Uh, over the last now three years, uh, as of this past weekend, uh, since the COVID vaccine broke out in this country. Um, but nonetheless, it is still, you know, COVID. It is still something we need to make sure that we follow all of the medical and scientific guidance we've received uh, to protect ourselves, our loved ones, and our community from this. Uh, second uh, piece of news is that, uh, as I said, we're going to focus this week on the budget process that is just getting underway. Uh, I have some thoughts on that, and we'll, we'll spend you know the bulk of this episode talking about that. Um, but also, uh, some news that came out from the state of Arkansas, and uh, newly elected Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, signed a law gutting the child labor protections for minors under 16 years old. So what that uh, signifies, uh, and this article uh, was published on March 8th uh, from Raw Story, and the author is David Badash of the New Civil Rights Movement. Uh, What uh, transpired is uh, Arkansas Republican Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, she signed a law, uh, a bill into law, uh, further destabilizing minors uh, in what was once called the land of opportunity. Uh, on uh, that on Tuesday, uh, last Tuesday, uh, Huckabee Sanders signed House Bill HB 1410, the Youth Hiring Act. And what this bill does is essentially it guts child labor protections, uh, and you know what the what Governor Huckabee Sanders called arbitrary and uh, burdens, excuse me, arbitrary, burden, burdensome, and obsolete regulations that required states to verify the age of anyone working who was under 16 years old. Uh, so the regulations that, that were replaced merely required children under the age of 16 in, uh, would have to get an employment certificate uh, which is accessible to local school officials before a company can hire them. Uh, the change would end one of the only oversight mechanisms for child labor in the state. Uh, it re- re- The law also rolls back significant portions of the state's child labor protections, and this is according to uh, reports from the Washington Post. Um, and, you know, it, it really just opens the door and and flings the door open widely for abuses of young people uh, in the state of Arkansas with regard to uh, working uh, that the child labor laws were aiming to protect. So in this time of uh, Republican administrations around the country uh, working hard to uh, give more rights to parents in terms of how their children um are are raised uh specifically um under the mantle of parents rights um they have supported bans on books uh, sex education and any discussion of LGBTQ people uh but governor huckabee's law uh, basically flies in the face of that because it removes the right of parents to be informed of or consent to their young minor children uh, to get a job. Uh, before this bill, the state law prohibited children under 16 working more than eight hours a day, more than six days a week, or more than uh, and more than 48 hours per week, according to uh, local news sources. Uh, opponents of this bill have expressed concerns it will open the door to violations of those ch- child labor requirements and put children at risk of human trafficking. Uh, the, the idea here is that Governor Huckabee, who mentioned her own three children in her official state biography, signed the law stripping rights from parents and children just weeks after the Department of Labor uh, fined a slaughterhouse cleaning company one and a half million dollars for child labor violations, involving over a hundred children. That fine includes $150,000 for two locations in Huckabee State of Arkansas. So, you know, as I said, in the day and and age where Republicans have, according to uh, their uh, rhetoric and and speech, uh, been an advocate for giving uh, and expanding the rights of parents to govern, you know, how their children are educated, what uh, books are acceptable, uh, how school systems and other elements uh, run, here this law actually goes against that flow by taking the information that parents would receive that their minor children uh, are looking for a job and uh, you know, basically throwing that open to whatever opportunities are out there Uh, And potentially leading to the exploitation of children, you know, 13, 14, 15, uh, and and up to 16 uh, to work longer hours, harder jobs, uh, perhaps, you know, less overall protections uh, going forward. So this is something we'll keep an eye on and we'll let you know uh, how this development develops and if there are any uh, challenges if this bill or this law is taken to court and so forth. So keep it locked here and fired up uh, and we will keep you updated on that. In other news related to uh, minor children um, Colorado uh, Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert uh, made an announcement that uh, she is going to become a grandmother for the first time. Now Ordinarily, uh, that would not uh, raise uh, as to something that uh, we would you know, look at here on Fired Up, but some of the circumstances uh, bear uh, making mention of. And while, you know, I'm, you know, obviously, um, you know, happy for Congresswoman uh, Boebert that she's going to be a grandmother, um, you know, there are some things that. Uh, caught my eye and, and and made me ask questions about uh, this news article. Uh, and this came from The Hill, uh, and it came out on uh, Saturday. And essentially, Bobert was receiving an award from the Moms for America. Uh, she was receiving the Mothers Influence Award on Tuesday, um, as as they said, for taking an incredible stance in empowering moms, promoting liberty, and raising patriots. Now, again, you, you might ask, what's this got to do with fired up politics? Well, Lauren Boebert is among the more vocal members of the uh, far-right Republican caucus that uh, speak at, at any opportunity about, you know, both the sanctity of marriage and, you know, the, the fact that uh, children are having babies and so forth. Uh, her son, uh, who is going to be the father, is 17 years old. Uh, and the mother is uh, the girlfriend of her son, so they're not married. Um, you know, it, it's a, a, a thing to me, that just says that there is a little bit of hypocrisy here. If someone who is such a staunch advocate for marriage and family um, is, you know, having you know her first grandchild to be born by her, you know, unmarried son and his girlfriend, uh, just putting that out there to notice that, you know, it it might be a little bit hypocritical on her part so you know just just a thing it's just something that came across um in in my news filters because of who was mentioned in the article moving on to um politics of a national nature uh, there's an article that came out of market watch uh over the past few days and uh it headline reads, the government may stop issuing social security payments after the debt limit is hit. And here's why. Uh, Basically, the article is describing uh, the scenario where uh, if the government uh, doesn't resolve the debt limit uh, crisis, and we're going to talk about that uh, a bit in the budget discussion coming up, um, the article talks about uh, the, the very real possibility that the government will stop issuing Social Security payments after the debt limit is hit. And uh, it, is, it is being uh, discussed as, uh, as scary as that is, the alternative might be even worse. Seems that there is a little-known provision of a 1996 law uh, that could be interpreted to allow the Social Security Trust Fund to be used not only to pay Social Security's monthly checks, but also to circumvent the, death, the debt limit and pay all the government's otherwise overdue bills. Uh, and the article says if that happens, any short-term relief to Social Security recipients would come with a potentially huge long-term price tag. Uh, the Social Security Trust Fund could be exhausted much sooner than currently projected and, you know, It's saying by much sooner, it means in a couple of years. Uh, These dire possibilities uh, emerge from analysis uh, conducted by the chief economist of the Concord Coalition, a group that describes itself as a, quote, nonpartisan organization dedicated to educating the public and finding common sense solutions to our nation's fiscal policy challenges. That's a mouthful. Uh, An issue brief he wrote entitled, Social Security's Debt Limit Escape Clause, uh, which is available on the group's website, uh, should be noted that uh, he is not advocating that the Social Security Trust Fund uh, should be used in this way. Uh, He instead stressed that he wrote his issue brief because we need to be aware that not only that this escape clause exists, but that its use could have unintended consequences. Uh, now, this is a relatively obscure uh, uh, law that you know relatively few people on Capitol Hill, the Treasury Department, and the Social Admin- Security Administration are very much aware of. Um, but you know the idea is uh, this law uh, created again in 1996. Creates the escape clause. Uh, It was passed in the wake of the government hitting its debt limit in 1995 and 1996. Ironically, the intent of that law was to prevent the Social Security Trust Fund from being used for anything other than paying Social Security benefits. But, uh, the author explains, that's unworkable in the real world. That's because Social Security checks are sent out by the Treasury's general account. And if that account is in default, then the checks would bounce. And if and when the debt limit is hit, the article continues, uh, therefore the only way in practice for Social Security checks to continue being issued and cleared through the banking system would be for the Social Security Trust Fund to, quote, lend the Treasury sufficient funds that it could pay all the government's unmet obligations. Um, it, it Lend, you know, putting it in air quotes, uh, it's not exactly how it works. Uh, according to the article, the key is that the, again, air quotes, loan can be structured in ways that don't count against the debt limit. Uh, so, you know, there, there's more, you know, information on how that is in the brief that's filed um, but essentially it's saying uh, if the debt limit is hit, which it's projected to do perhaps as early as June, Congress and the President will be on the horns of a huge dilemma. Do they allow Social Security checks to continue getting paid, risking the political fallout of being accused of raiding the Social Security trust fund, or do they stop issuing Social Security payments risking the political fallout of not issuing Social Security payments, on whom the very livelihoods of many elderly currently depend. So, you know, you, you get the idea why Congress and the President don't want us to know that this escape clause exists. Once we are aware of it, they are put in a no-win situation. So, you know, the, the bottom line is, uh, it's going to be a wild ride in coming months as both parties play political brinksmanship over the debt limit and, by extension, Social Security. With both sides by the day hardening their stances, there is a very real possibility that the debt limit will be hit. And you know, if that happens, we'll be hearing a lot more about the little-known provision of a 30-year-old law. Now. I recall that this did receive some discussion, um, you know, uh, particularly uh, former Vice President Al Gore was, was calling for the Social Security Fund to be put in a, quote, lockbox that would be untouchable for any purpose other than paying Social Security benefits to uh, citizen recipients. Uh, that proposal uh, never came to fruition Uh, But this law was put in place supposedly to protect the Social Security trust fund. But like many laws that come out of Washington, there are, of course, loopholes. And one of the loopholes is that would allow uh, the Treasury to uh, essentially lend money from the trust fund to pay the other debt obligations that the country has Uh, basically. Uh, draining the trust fund much sooner, so we'll we'll keep up with this, um, you know, and we'll bring you any updates or you know decisions that are made on how this situation is going to be handled. Uh, we're going to talk more about this as we go through the budget uh, review uh, in a few minutes, uh, but just something that you should be aware of that there is this provision out there uh, that exists. That, you know, could be uh, brought into play, you know, like the cavalry. uh, And we just need to make sure that we are aware of where this money is coming from and what its impact is going to be beyond just, you know, paying the debts, what it's going to do to Social Security. So keep an ear out and look for, you know, as as this crisis, this debt limit crisis gets worse. Um, If we hear about this magical mystery fund of money that is going to take care of this, it is highly likely that this is where they're getting it from. So the more informed you are, uh, the better it is uh, for us to be in communication with our elected officials and let them know where we stand on this approach. Which brings us to our discussion of uh, the budget for fiscal year 2024. Uh, before we actually get into the summaries of the Democratic uh, budget and the uh, Republican, uh, I guess, preliminary response we've gotten, uh, let's do a little bit of a primer on uh, what goes into the budget in case it's something that you know, you're, you're not familiar with. Um, and this is going to be a very simplistic uh, intro to it, and uh, you'll see why as we go forward. Um, All right. First of all, you know, the budget is like any budget, including your household budget. It is uh, the explanation of revenues, the money that comes into the system and expenditures, uh, what uh, that money is used to pay for. Uh, In the United States, the revenue side is the taxes that the federal government collects from each of us on our paychecks and other Uh, elements, uh, you know, sales tax and excise taxes and so forth. Uh, The expenditures are everything that the government buys and pays for, uh, from, you know, education expenses to defense to uh, entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, All of these things are paid for uh, and, and established by the budget. Now, uh, the process works uh, as follows. The administration uh, will uh, always put its budget proposal out to the public first. And then the party in opposition, uh, in this case and at this time the Republicans, uh, they respond with their budget proposal. Uh, and the two are you know, reconciled and uh, agreed to. Uh, to come up with the final budget for the United States of America which is due uh, to be published uh, about the time that the fiscal year ends which is the end of September. So you know that lays out that we have between now and the end of September uh, for the two sides to reconcile their differences uh, and produce a final budget for the United States. Now, uh, something else to understand is uh, the goal of any budget is to be balanced. That is, for the uh, out, outgoing uh, expenditures uh, to be equal to or less than the incoming revenues. Now, the last time that we have had a balanced budget in this country uh, was during the Clinton administration uh, in the 1980s. Uh, since then, um, you know, we have had uh, Republican administrations that have uh, exceeded the uh, the the revenues by expenditures, otherwise known as deficits, which uh, require the United States to borrow money uh, to pay those t- in order to keep the ba- the budget in balance, so to speak. Um, so, you know. Uh, Clinton uh, left office with a budget surplus. That is, we had more money in the bank than we had things we had to pay for. Um, the Republican administrations that followed uh, exploded the deficits through n- not only expenditures on um, military activities, the war in Iraq, uh, the war in Afghanistan, you know, the, um, the, the war on terror, and so forth, But also uh, because each of the Republican administrations incorporated uh, what are called unfunded mandates in the form of tax uh, cuts for the wealthiest Americans uh, and corporations in this country. Uh, The key words there are unfunded mandates. That is something where a uh, financial expenditure is made that does not have a corresponding revenue to offset it and keep the budget at or near balanced. Uh, now, when we look at, you know, the Democratic administrations that have been in place uh, since Clinton, uh, notably the Obama administration, uh, when they left office, there was still a budget deficit, but they had managed to reduce it by uh, more than half. Uh, they were unable to, to get it to, you know, a net balance uh, simply because of the ongoing obligations that came forward from the uh, predecessor administration, including the uh, the Bush tax cuts uh, that were, you know, in effect and reduced the amount of revenue that the government collected. Um, so, you know, we've we've run deficits uh, just about every administration since the Clinton administration uh, and. You know, while Democrats have been uh, what could be called a little more fiscally uh, responsible in trying to uh, eliminate the deficit, uh, the Republican administrations that we have had since Clinton uh, have exploded the deficit uh, up to and including the, you know, 25 percent increase that occurred uh, in the uh, Donald Trump administration. Do again to the 1.7 trillion dollar tax cut that he got passed uh, through Congress and signed into law. So you know the the idea here is that you know the the income and the outgo uh, need to be balanced in order for uh, the budget deficit to be reduced and ultimately for the budget itself to be balanced. Now, you know, given our current uh, deficit, uh, it is very, very difficult in order to do that as we'll talk about uh, because there are certain programs that are uh, considered insulated from budget cuts uh, because of you know, what they are. And by those, I mean the entitlement programs of Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Uh, and also the other untouched element of the federal budget, which accounts for uh, the largest expenditure from the budget, uh, aside from uh, debt payment, uh, interest on the debt payment, rather, is the military budget. So the, the dilemma comes in to you know, where can you uh, have cuts in the budget to reduce the deficit? That, that doesn't uh, hamstring the entitlements and the what's called the non-discretionary spending. So uh, what we have is a situation where roughly 65% uh, uh, of the entitle, entire uh, federal um, budget is untouchable. So in order to try and balance the budget, you would need to make cuts to the remaining 35 percent, which include programs like education, um, you know, uh, food stamps, um, you know, uh, other uh, lesser expenditures that occur in the budget, um, you know, expenditures for, you know, uh, environmental uh, actions. Uh, these things that are called non-discretionary, or I'm sorry, are discretionary. Um, and so herein lies the problem. Uh, it is you know, not possible to cut enough money out of the remaining 35% of the government expenditures uh, to you know, make more than just a superficial dent in the deficit without uh, totally destroying uh, the services that the government uh, provides that, while discretionary, are absolutely necessary. I mean, funding for schools, uh, infrastructure, uh, roads, bridges, you know, communications, power grids, um, the, the funding for uh, some of the non-discretionary non-dis- you know, uh, social programs, as I said, like uh, SNAP benefits and assistance for families in need uh, and these kinds of things. Uh, it's not possible to uh cut them to a point where again we could make a substantial dent in the deficit Uh, and while the uh the medicare social security and medicaid programs um technically could be cut uh, the defense budget uh, is sort of protected territory by the republicans Uh, they are um and ha- have been in the past uh, absolutely against any cuts in defense spending uh, that that have been placed on the table for consideration. And, and keep in mind, with that, that the Defense Department has some of the largest uh, waste in money, uh, primarily for funding efforts for military programs that are no longer really necessary. Uh, And, you know, yet uh, those programs and the defense budget is uh, vehemently protected uh, by the Republicans uh, because those military bases and those programs operate in, you know, congressional and senatorial districts and states. Uh, And even Democrats are hesitant uh, to consider cuts to defense spending. Uh, For that reason and and others. So, you know, as we look at the budget for fiscal year 2024, keep in mind that there are some areas that while it would seem logical to make cuts in, uh, are political third rails that no one in Washington wants to touch. So we'll break here. When we come back after the break, we're going to go over. The the summary of the Biden administration's budget proposal and the response that we have received so far from uh, the Republican House Freedom Caucus uh, in terms of what they want to do with spending in this country. So let's keep it right here on the fired up podcast on WJMS media and we'll be right back after the break. Hey, folks, it's Steve. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to my podcast. It's called Fired Up, and it's where we get into the mechanics and look under the hood and behind the curtain of the politics here in the United States. Please go and grab other episodes from our archive sites. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. And welcome back. Welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve. So we're about to get into an overview of the Biden administration's budget proposal for fiscal year 2024 and a response that was put out by the Republican House Freedom Caucus. Uh, It is not the official uh, budget proposal of the Republican Party. Uh, but rather just uh, a, a segment of that party that has put out this response uh, to the budget uh, proposal from President Biden. Now, uh, a couple of other uh, minor points uh, by way of housekeeping. Uh, overall, the uh, Biden administration's budget proposal totals uh, $6.9 trillion with a T dollars. And you know, that is uh, the total expenditure uh, that they're estimating for the budget. Now, you need to keep in mind that that number is fluid and it will likely uh, change, it will, you know, go up, go down uh, as the course of time goes forward, Uh, and the final budget uh, could be. Uh, somewhat less than that, Uh, could be a little bit more than that. It depends on how negotiations go uh, with the Republicans and what the final budget looks like. So uh, CNN put out an article that gave an overview of the Biden administration's budget proposal. And remember, as I said uh, earlier, the administration uh, in, in control Uh, In any given year will put out its budget proposal first, and then the opposition party will respond to that budget with their own proposal, and then they will get together and iron out the differences. So according to CNN, here is uh, an overview of what's in Biden's budget proposal. Uh, The first one that they list, and these are in no particular order, uh, is to place a minimum tax on billionaires. Uh, so, the budget includes a 25% minimum tax on all the income of the wealthiest 0.01% of Americans, including their appreciated assets. Uh, it would hit those with a net worth of more than $100 million, And it should be noted that prior efforts to add this type of tax uh, were not successful. Uh, it will increase the corporate tax rate. Uh, The president wants to increase the corporate tax rate to 28% up from the 21% rate set by the GOP tax cut package in 2017. Uh, It's also uh, proposing to reduce initiatives for multinational businesses to book profits in low-tax jurisdiction and raise the tax rate on their foreign earnings to 21% from 10.5%. And it would hike the stock top ta- tax enacted last year to 4% from 1%. Uh, it would uh, propose to repeal Trump's tax cuts for the wealthy. Uh, the Biden proposal would scrap some tax cup- cuts for certain individuals that were put in place by the Republicans' 2017 tax law. Uh, It would raise the top tax rate to 39.6% from 37%. This would impact single-filers making $400,000 a year and married couples making $450,000 per year. Uh, It also proposes taxing capital gains at the same rate as wage income for those earning more than $1 million a year, as well as closing the carried interest loophole That allows investment managers to treat much of their compensation as capital gains, thus lowering their tax rate. Uh, That also has uh, been met with a a firm resistance from the opposition in prior years. Uh, It would restore the enhanced child tax credit. Uh, And basically, this is the tax credit that was expanded uh, during covid uh, it would beef up the credit to $3,600 per child for those under age 6 and $3,000 for older children. And it would, make, uh, it would permanently make the credit fully refundable so more low-income families would qualify. Uh, the tax plan would improve Medicare's finances. Biden wants to shore up Medicare's hospital insurance trust fund, known as Part A, by raising taxes on those earning more than $400,000 a year and by allowing Medicare to negotiate prices for even more drugs. Uh, and again, uh, Medicare, which covers uh, more than 65 million senior citizens and people with disabilities, will only be able to fully pay scheduled benefits until 2028, according to the most recent forecast by its trustees. Biden's plan would include extend Medicare solvency by 25 years or more. Uh, It would uh, cap the price for insulin for all Americans uh, at $35 uh, a a month for everyone. Right now it is only capped at $35 a month uh, for Medicare beneficiaries uh, presently. Uh, Biden wants to expand that uh, and extend it out to all who need uh, insulin to treat their diabetes, uh, it would reduce prescription costs for seniors. The budget proposes to limit Medicare beneficiaries' out-of-pocket co- out costs for generic drugs used for certain chronic conditions to more than two dollars. Uh, to no more than two dollars. Pardon me. Seniors' costs would also drop if Medicare expanded its drug price negotiations. It would make extended Obamacare subsidies permanent. I'm sorry, enhanced Obamacare subsidies permanent. Biden wants to continue the more generous Affordable Care Act subsidies, which are set to expire after 2025. Uh, The temporary enhancement has beefed up the premium subsidy and allowed more middle class folks to qualify. Uh, so, it would also provide Medicare-like coverage to those in states that have not expanded the public health insurance program for low-income Americans. Uh, the, plan include, the budget includes plans to increase food security. The budget would provide more than $15 billion to allow more states and schools to provide free school meals in, to an additional 9 million children. Uh, The budget uh, includes plans to reduce maternal mortality. Biden proposes $471 million to uh, reduce maternal mortality rates and expand maternal health initiatives in rural communities. It would also require all states to provide continuous Medicaid postpartum coverage for 12 months instead of the current 60 days. Uh, it would, uh, the budget includes plans to lower Medicaid spending. The budget would require private insurance companies that provide Medicaid coverage to pay back some money when they charge the program far more than they actually spend on patient care. And it would give the Department of Health and Human Services the ability to negotiate additional supplemental Medicaid drug rebates on behalf of states. Uh, The budget includes a provision to make college more affordable. Uh, The spending plan calls for a $500 increase to the maximum Pell Grant, uh, which is awarded to roughly 7 million college students from the lowest income families annually. Currently, the Pell Grant max is at $7,395 for the 23-24 school year, Congress has increased the maximum amount by $900 over the past two years, but the grant historically covered uh, a larger share of the cost of college than it does now. Uh, Universal preschool and affordable childcare is another tenet of the, the budget proposal. The budget would provide funding for a new federal state partnership program that would provide universal free preschool. The spending plan would also increase funding for existing federal early care and education programs. Uh, Provision in the budget to provide paid family and medical leave. Biden's budget would establish a national paid family and medical leave program. It would provide 12 weeks of leave for eligible employees to take time off to care for and bond with a new child, care for a seriously ill loved one, heal from their own serious illness, uh, address circumstances arising from a loved one's military deployment, or find safety from domestic violence, sexual assault, or stalking, according to uh, the administration. Uh, The budget has uh, item to address climate change. The spending plan calls for billions of dollars of investment to help address climate change. Uh, It looks at, for example, money would go toward creating clean energy jobs and cutting energy bills for families, funding climate research, and helping communities uh, become uh, strengthened with their infrastructure to withstand floods, wildfires, storms, and droughts brought on by climate change. Uh, It would also include funding for military defense and support for Ukraine the uh, proposed budget would provide the U.S. Department of Defense with a 3.2% increase in funding over this year's level with an emphasis on countering China and assisting Ukraine. Uh, it would also deliver more than $6 billion uh, through both the Departments of Defense and State to Ukraine and other European allies to help fight against Russian aggression. So those are the, the major Uh, high points of the Biden uh, budget plan for fiscal year uh, 2024. And, you know, as I said, the Republican uh, caucus um, has not yet laid its budget proposal on the table. Um, and, And I'll talk a little bit about my thinking on that in a minute. However, the Republican House Freedom Caucus has put out a, a document uh, regarding the FY24 uh, budget, and I will state again for the record: this is not the Republican Party's uh, budget proposal for the coming fiscal year. This is a budget document that was prepared by the Freedom, the House Freedom Caucus, uh, which uh, consists of twenty some odd. Uh, Congress people uh, from the Republican Party uh, who put together uh, their outline for what uh, would the, the budget would look like. And let me further uh, background it by saying uh, the, the Freedom Caucus uh, is saying that you know, they will not uh, vote to raise the debt limit ceiling unless every provision of this document is agreed to uh, by the full House. Now, with that being said, uh, the Freedom Caucus uh, plan, and this is according to an article from uh, MSN, uh, which states the right-wing House Freedom Caucus uh, on Friday released its list of prerequisites for cutting the federal budget in order for its members to support raising the debt ceiling. Uh, reminder, the Republicans have a five-seat majority in the House. Why it matters, and the article states, with Republicans holding a five-seat House majority and a new rule giving any member the power to trigger a motion to remove the House Speaker, these hardliners have considerable leverage to influence the budget process. Their votes on the debt ceiling could mean the difference between The U.S. continuing to be able to borrow money to pay off its debts and a potentially catastrophic default. Uh, The details. In a statement released Friday, the caucus listed the conditions for its members to consider voting to raise the debt ceiling. Uh, The first bullet point. Ending the Biden administration's $400 billion student loan forgiveness program. The next bullet point. Rescinding unspent COVID relief funds. The next point, clawing back funding for the IRS and climate change prevention in the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, The next bullet point, instituting greater work requirements on welfare programs. Uh, The next bullet point, requiring congressional sign-off on all major federal regulations before they can go into effect. Uh, The next one, finding every dollar spent by Democrats that can be reclaimed for the American taxpayer. And then the final bullet point, the big picture. The statement calls for significant across-the-board cuts in funding to federal agencies by capping spending levels at 2022 levels for the next 10 years. Uh, The document concludes it is geared toward an eventual goal of balancing the budget, Although Freedom Caucus Chair Scott Perry, uh, Republican of Pennsylvania, acknowledged the proposals don't quite reach the cuts need to accomplish that. And that's the end of the document. So, you know, if we contrast and compare the uh, proposals, the Biden document that outlines uh, the points in its budget runs to 184 pages. The Freedom Caucus response uh, that I just cited is a one-page document. And again, this is not the Republican Party's response. Uh, It is uh, specifically the Freedom Caucus. And the article goes on to say, This is what we're willing to do with what's happening right now, Perry said in a press conference on Friday, adding that the current goal is, quote, changing the trajectory of the budget process to enable further cuts and uh, what they're saying is that Perry uh, flanked by more than a dozen of his Freedom Caucus colleagues said President Biden's 6.8 trillion budget request is quote not happening close quote Perry also expressed confidence that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, will won't try to bypass their leverage by working across the aisle Uh, and he's quoted as saying Speaker McCarthy is not going to cut a deal with Democrats. He's also quoted as saying, uh, we're not assuming that leadership is opposed to uh, these things, he told reporters. What is objectionable here? This is all reasonable stuff. And that's the uh, House Freedom Caucus response to the uh, administration's budget proposal. So let's kind of compare and contrast uh, with what we know uh, of, of the uh, budget process that is about to get underway. Um, number one, uh, the administration's budget uh, is you know, forward-looking. It clearly states what it wants to do and gives some insight into uh, what the plan is to make that happen. Uh, the House Freedom Caucus response, on the other hand, is really a laundry list of things they, they won't do and the, uh, the, the threat of holding the debt ceiling hostage till all of these points that I just ran down for you are agreed to. Um, now, it's, it's not to say that even if all of these are agreed to, that it would be approved by the senate uh, and uh, become part of the process of reconciling the budget for the united states Uh, the bottom line is uh, we should all strap in uh, keep our hands and feet inside the ride because this is going to be a battle uh, that we are going to watch play out over the next four or five months remember uh, the budget needs to be approved and in place by the end of the current fiscal year, which is on the last day of September uh, of this year. Uh, and you know, if the budget is not approved by then, then there will be you know, and and we have seen this in the past uh, many, many, many times. Uh, a series of what are called continuing resolutions or CRs, uh, which will continue to pay for key elements of government operations until a budget is proposed. Um, otherwise uh, aspects of the federal government uh, will be uh, unfunded and essentially shut down until such time as there is a, a final plan in place on how the dollars are to be spent. Uh, as I said, we have seen this occur in the past. Uh, we have seen this hostage tactic taken before, most notably during the Obama administration with uh, the Tea Party uh, plan and what was called the sequester, where a plan was put forward uh, over the objections of uh, President Obama that would require mandatory cuts to, uh, to government spending uh, across the board including the previously mentioned untouchables of you know, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and the defense budget, uh, just so that any new expenditures would be paid for. Uh, that was a very uh, painful and traumatic experience for the government. Uh, we really were not sure uh, at, at some points during that process uh, if the government would come out whole or not. So, you know, it, just to give you an idea of the battles that are about to uh, ensue. So the other points in there uh, that I wanted to bring up is uh, this, uh, this document was likely one of the key uh, uh, gifts to the Freedom Caucus by then House Uh, speaker candidate McCarthy in order to garner their votes. Uh, If you recall, and I know it seems like it was a long time ago, but it really only was about eight weeks, um, as part of the five-day, 15-vote marathon uh, uh, clown show of getting Kevin McCarthy elected speaker, uh, he had to make a series of concessions uh, of things uh, this document was likely one of them, that um, guidance for the budget process would come from the Freedom Caucus. Uh, there was another concession that we have seen play out where uh, members of key committees, uh, the seats on those committees were filled by House Freedom Caucus uh, members. Um, think Marjorie Taylor Greene sitting on the Homeland Security Committee, for example. Um And there were uh, other agreements uh, that were made and agreed to by McCarthy, including the agreement that uh, not five, but one single congressperson could call for a motion to vacate. In other words, could call for him to be removed as Speaker of the House uh, and a new vote for Speaker be held now. Uh, as I said, it may seem like a long time ago, but it's only been eight weeks. Uh, we still have, you know, the the better part of two years uh, of the current congressional session to go through. So this is probably not our first dance uh, with this muscle flexing by the House Freedom Caucus. And, you know, we should be aware that, you know, should you know such a vote be called for and. You know the the majority rule to remove McCarthy as speaker. You know some of the likely candidates to replace him would include people like uh, Jim Jordan. Uh, would include Congressman Biggs. You know would include uh, a, a few people from the caucus uh, who are not only um, much more hardline than McCarthy is, uh, but they're also you know election deniers. Uh, they are uh, Trump uh, groupies and, you know, so forth. And, you know, that would, would be very uh, damaging to the uh, Congress of the United States from the standpoint of having leadership in place with such a radical agenda. So, you know, I said back in January that, you know, it, it is not certain that uh, Kevin McCarthy will survive the entire term of the uh, 118th Congress. Um, and as a, I'm thinking now that maybe I should have taken the under on um, you know, whether or not he makes it through the rest of this year. Uh, so what does this all mean? Well, it all means that uh, the majority, the House majority, currently the Republicans, um, are taking a very heavy handed approach to governing uh, in uh, the current term. Now, keep in mind that uh, it is likely that any of these more radical uh, bills that come out of the House uh, will die on the Senate floor because the Senate is controlled uh, even slimly by Democrats. Um, Side note, don't forget we still have Joe Manchin as a Democratic Senator and we all know how that uh, played out over the prior uh, Congress, the 117th. Um, So, you know, we are in for a a tough time. That's the only way you can kind of look at it. We're going to see, you know, much infighting Uh, The Republican caucus uh, is itself uh, a fractured entity with the uh, ultra-conservatives on one side and the moderates and more uh, liberal-thinking Republicans on the other side uh, with little by way of communication between the two factions or, or factions of the Republican Party occurring so the idea of them getting, you know, much in the way of substantial work for the American people done uh, really is in, in jeopardy, if you want my opinion. So, you know, as always, uh, it, it looks like it is up to uh, the voters to to be the final arbiters. We need to make sure that we are engaged with what's going on at the federal level in the House Uh, And, you know, as we've talked about here on this show before, that extends all the way down through the state and local levels as well. But, you know, in in terms of some of these key critical elements, particularly as we are now starting the budget battle phase, uh, it it is something that we need to be strongly uh, encouraging uh, the Republican side of the House, both Uh, In the House of Representatives, and for those of you that happen to have, you know, Republican uh, senators, uh, you need to make sure that you are continuously letting them know what your opinions are, that you are communicating with them all the time. Uh, Now, I will say, and, and I have to be honest here, that the Republicans have shown a preclusion for ignoring uh, popular uh, uh, public opinion from on, on everything from you know the abortion battle to uh, you know LGBTQ rights or, or anything that you know an overwhelming majority of the American population is in favor of uh, Republicans have historically over the past uh, decade or two uh, notably ignored what the sentiment of the people is so with that being said that leaves the people with little choice but to examine who it is that represents us at the federal level as well as at the state level and uh, make alternative voting choices uh, accordingly we need to be identifying candidates who think more along the lines of the general population and uh, elevate and encourage those people to run for office and then support them in that effort so that we can begin to affect a a change in our government uh, that more reflects what we the people think that it should. Now, I'm not saying uh, in any way, shape or form that is this is something that can be solved in a single election cycle. Um, you know, it, it took us many um national election cycles to get here and it's going to take us many election cycles to reverse it but that effort is important to be made and we the citizens need to commit ourselves to making sure that our elected officials that are our senate our house our white house and uh And our state houses and state legislatures reflect who it is that lives in the territories. Um, We've talked about, you know, the proposal from, you know, Congresswoman Green about uh, a national divorce of dividing the country in red states or blue states. Uh, We've debunked that and you can you can do it for yourselves if you dig in and look at the county breakdown of political uh, parties by vote in the 2022 elections and what you will find is that even the reddest of red states have many 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 uh counties and districts that are actually democratic so the state is actually purple and in fact the united states of america is a purple nation Uh, it is not um, evenly divided uh, uh, physically By, you know, Republican and Democrat, it is a blended uh, country. So, you know, it's on us to make sure that we are holding our elected officials accountable and that we follow through on that accountability by voting out of office those who are not listening to us. So you know, it, this is something that is going to take, as I said, many election cycles. So strap in for a ride. Uh, but it is something that we need to get done. So that's our, that's our battle cry. That's our call to order. Uh, that's our, our command, our marching orders going forward. So as always, you know, we will keep you informed. We will keep you posted. If you have comments or thoughts on this or any of our episodes Please send email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know if you agree or disagree with the budget uh, proposals from either side uh, You know that you've heard. And again, the Freedom Caucus one is you know just one uh, 20-something uh, group of House Republicans out of the 227 uh, total. So... With that being said, uh, that's all for this week. I look forward to uh, bringing you new insights uh, in our next podcast. Please stay safe until then. And I will be back to talk with you again in seven days.